Welcome to The Investigation. I'm Chris Blasto, Senior Executive Producer here at ABC News. I'm also joined by my co-host, ABC News reporter Catherine Falters, who covers the White House and Capitol Hill. It's gearing up to be a busy and historic week here in Washington as the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump commences. The president's defense team deepening their bench last week, announcing that former independent counsel Ken Starr and his deputy Robert Ray, along with constitutional law professor Alan Dershowitz, who actually did the talk show circuit last week, making his case why he thinks this impeachment should not continue and it should be dismissed. But joining us now, Paul Rosenzweig. He served as a senior counsel to Ken Starr during the Whitewater investigation. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me. Uh, Second impeachment in the last 21 years. Um, What are your thoughts about this impeachment in a very general way? Well, I think it is likely to be viewed as a watershed moment in American history. Uh, I, I, I don't say that lightly, but how we approach this impeachment, what its ultimate result is, and whether or not this impeachment becomes a pure political football or can be resolved in some way that is more solemn and reflective of the seriousness of the allegations being made is something that's going to resonate in American history for the next 30 to 50 years. Do you see, we, we actually had a conversation last week with some of our colleagues where we, where, where we mentioned that Nancy Pelosi and the Republicans are kind of treating this maybe perhaps like a highway bill and not, say, the solemnness of an impeachment of a president. Would you agree? I'd certainly agree with respect to the House Republicans who, uh, who have not covered themselves with glory. Uh, I think that the lack of even the patina of bipartisanship, even as to the process involved, has radically colored the way in which the American public perceives this impeachment. Perhaps it's asking too much in this time of Trump to seek a more nuanced and balanced view of what's happening. But uh, I tend to agree that the aura around this impeachment is far more reflective of divided government than was even the impeachment of Clinton, which was pretty darn divided. But that's what I was going to go to, because I remember it well. I lived it every day, and and I always felt like there was extreme partisanship 21 years ago during Clinton. I mean, what what do you see are the differences and similarities of, of the past impeachment? Well, I mean, there, there are lots of differences in, that you could name. Uh, I, I guess the most obvious is, is that even back then, uh, some people crossed party lines to vote on the articles of impeachment, and the Senate wound up coming together a hundred to nothing on its organizing resolution for how it would conduct the hearing and, uh, and resolve the impeachment itself. Uh, I see no prospect for that in the offing in the current Senate trial. Uh, More fundamentally, though, I think the American public is far more uh, polarized and riven 
than it was in the Clinton impeachment. Maybe it's just that things like the Internet have revealed the divide more starkly than it has been in the past. But I have a sense that even back then there were you know, people who were uh, dismayed and angry with the president. I remember Joe Lieberman uh, calling for the president's censure and, and condemning him in no uncertain terms in a way that no Republican senator would speak about Trump today. So maybe something in American culture has changed. Maybe it's broken. I mean, I remember 20 years ago, and we we basically knew what the outcome was going to be then as well as we do now. And do you think that's kind of lessening what impeachment is all about? It may be that that impeachment is becoming normalized and and, and will be too routine a part of uh, of the American political scene. I certainly hope that's not true. And to be honest with you, I don't feel as though that's what the Trump impeachment is. Uh, You might have made an argument about that with respect to Clinton. It's one I wouldn't agree with, but there was at least a reasonable case to be made by the president's defenders. Uh, I, at this point, see President Trump's response to the impeachment as completely outside of the box of normal discussion, right? His seven-page response was not uh, an argument on the merits about the facts. It wasn't even an argument on the merits about the law. It reads like nothing so much as, uh, one of my friends said, the scream of a wounded animal uh, raging against the tide. Uh, I would have thought that the allegations against the president would have actually merited serious consideration by the Senate and by Republicans in the House. But apparently, we are going to reduce impeachment to uh, nothing more than, I mean, I think you said it well, uh, a partisan fight over a highway bill. And it should be something more. I know you guys were uh, touching on this a little bit, but what we're hearing from Republicans up here on, on Capitol Hill is that this is the Clinton impeachment model. We want to do it the same way. Uh, House Democrats, Democrats are saying this isn't anything like the Clinton impeachment model because we're in an unprecedented time. The the administration has been blocking documents. They won't allow witnesses. Where do you come down on that particular argument? Uh, I, I don't think that the comparison to the Clinton model is very apt at all. Uh, the Clinton impeachment came after a nine month criminal investigation at which during which every assertion of executive privilege was eventually overcome. And all of the documents requested by the uh, independent counsel star were received by him and reviewed and put into his report. Bill Clinton himself testified before the grand jury and uh, even went so far as to give DNA evidence. So when Starr produced his report and gave it to Congress, he essentially gave them a completed package. And the facts were not really terribly in dispute uh, today. By contrast, the uh, House investigation was stymied at every turn by President Trump, uh, who has turned over almost no documentation at all, who tried to stop every witness from testifying, who did not testify himself and refused to do so both to Mueller and to the Congress. Um, And so we are in a different place now where additional factual development uh, is necessary, and that is and ought to be the province of the 
uh, Senate. The comparison, I think, is um, kind of apples to clouds. So you talk about the additional factual developments here. So, uh, again, there's obviously some witnesses. John Bolton has said that if he's subpoenaed, he'll come testify. He's a central player in this. But but the other thing that I think is going to be interesting to see play out up here is that new evidence that's coming in from that Giuliani associate, Lev Parnas, who's sharing this with the House Intelligence Committee, who is uh, releasing it on a rolling basis as they get it from him. Uh, Now, Republicans, as you know, don't want this uh, evidence. And at least sources are indicating from the White House side of it that they will attempt to uh, block this new evidence. Now, explain to us kind of how how this works. Should that evidence be included? If there's more evidence that comes out during the trial, uh, should that be taken into account? Or, or should it just be uh, that evidence that came out before those articles were formally transmitted from the House to the Senate side? Well, that's never been the case in any other impeachment. I don't know why we would restrict ourselves to the cold record of the House now. Every other impeachment that's ever happened in history has had witnesses and new evidence. There were. I was going back and reviewing the Andrew Johnson trial from 100 years ago, and there were um, over a dozen fact witnesses called to testify at by the Senate. Um, you know, plus, it, I mean, it just doesn't make sense logically what we're going to ignore new evidence. I, I mean, what if tomorrow uh, it, you know, uh, a, a smoking gun bit of evidence that has was a tape recording of the president saying, yeah, I did it and I don't care and I'm going to do it again. No matter what, if that came out, would the Senate seriously consider ignoring it? Just don't see that. That's a nonsense argument. But don't you think, though, the Democrats should have subpoenaed these people in the House? And that way, yes, it would have taken some time, but we would get to the truth then. Don't you think that was a maybe a calculated mistake? I would have wanted them to try and fight the subpoenas more quickly, but the courts were not being very, um, uh, very helpful. I mean, the courts have still not ruled on the on the House Ways and Means Committee's request for Trump's tax records. In in some ways, the ha- the the courts bear as much blame for the uh, place that we're in as anybody else. It would have been much better for the president's frivolous claims of privilege to have been overruled by the courts expeditiously. Unfortunately, um, you know, that just didn't happen. And if you really are serious about waiting around for that, that in effect disables the House altogether because they they work on a two-year cycle. And, you know, they started pretty promptly. Maybe they could have started in March instead of in, in May uh, with the first investigations. Uh, the whistleblower didn't come in until... September, and they were done by December, so that's pretty darn quick, uh, given what they could work with. A fight over the whistleblower's uh, allegations and and the testimony of John Bolton would not have been resolved before the end of middle of this coming year on the eve of the election. You also brought up Andrew Johnson, and and over the weekend, uh, Alan Dershowitz was on this week, and he's making the argument for Trump, although he is uh, he has said repeatedly a Hillary Clinton supporter, and he brought up Andrew Johnson. Let's listen to him right now. Well, it's the same position that was successfully argued by uh, former Justice Benjamin Curtis in the trial of Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson was impeached in part for non-criminal conduct, and Curtis, who was the dissenting judge in the Dred Scott case and one of the most eminent jurists in American history, 
made the argument that has been called absurdist, namely that when you read the text of the Constitution, bribery, um, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, other really means that crimes and misdemeanors must be of akin akin to uh, treason and bribery. And he argued, very successfully, winning the case, that uh, you needed proof of an actual crime. It needn't be a statutory crime, but it has to be criminal behavior, criminal in nature. And uh, the allegations in the Johnson case were much akin to the allegations here, uh, abusive conduct, uh, obstructive conduct, and that lost. Uh, so I have a limited role in the case. I'm only in the case of counsel on the constitutional criteria for impeachment. I'm not involved in the strategic decisions about witnesses or facts, but I will make a strong argument that Justice Curtis was correct and the Congress was wrong in impeaching for these two articles. And what do you make of this, Paul, his argument? Um, It's really hard to uh, take Professor Dershowitz seriously. I'm I'm sorry, uh, but... what he's saying is essentially nonsense. Uh, if you read the record of the uh, framing of the Constitution, the entire thrust of what uh, the uh, framers were opposed to was uh, abuses of power. At the time they passed the impeachment clause, there were no federal crimes. Uh, so, because uh, the, the first statute that adopted them was passed afterwards. President Nixon was the articles of impeachment against him involved abuses of power. Ken Starr, his co-counsel, recommended impeachment of Bill Clinton for abuses of power. Uh, Justice Curtis made that argument. There is no record that that's why the senators voted to acquit. Indeed, if you want to be realistic about it, probably the best evidence is, is that one of the senators was bribed to change his vote. But let's leave that aside and give him the credit for what it was due. Um, they may very well just have thought that it was not worth uh, disrupting the nation for that dispute, but they did not say that no abuse of power uh, could ever be an impeachable offense. And indeed, you know, the historical record is abundantly clear uh, for that. To anybody who's listening who wants to uh, read more about it, I recommend Frank Bowman's excellent book, High Crimes and Misdemeanors, that reviews the history of this going back to the English uh, par- uh, parliamentary precedents on impeachment, none of which ever said anything like what Professor Dershowitz has said. Uh, Paul, I've been skimming uh, through this White House trial brief that they released uh, Monday ahead of uh, ahead of the trial resuming, and, and it's it's interesting. They say you know there's a header that they say it would have been appropriate for uh, President Trump to ask President Zelensky about the Biden Burisma affair. Uh, they lay out the series of facts, but but they also in their formal trial brief they don't really deny that the president pressured Ukraine to announce these investigations, but then also reference those witnesses and depositions who said there wasn't pressure. It just this strategy and and from you working with um you know Ken Starr closely and knowing him well what do you think will be their strategy here oh i think their strategy is is very simple um to move as fast as they can because they know they have the votes avoid as much evidence as possible don't engage on the facts because the facts don't really uh support them Give the, give the senators a patina of law 
to uh, to hide behind, like the Dershowitz argument we were just talking about, and move as rapidly as possible to avoid as much evidence coming out as possible to avoid uh, the embarrassment of voting to acquit on conduct that none of them would support if it had been conducted by a Democrat. And you know Ken Starr. Why do you think Ken Starr is doing this? I, I really couldn't speculate. You'd have to ask Ken that. I find uh, I, I, I don't see his current position as consistent with the arguments he made about Clinton. So, uh, so I assume he's changed his mind. You don't think we're going to see witnesses in there, right? Like John Bolton, even though he said he's going to come. Like, do, do you see that happening? I know stranger things have, have happened, and you could have some of these senators uh, vote to haul in these witnesses. But, you know, how do you see that playing out? My, my guess is that the Republicans will hold tight, that they will vote in lockstep, that the president, there will be no witnesses and the president will be acquitted. My guess is that they'll wind up paying a price for that in uh, in the elections. I think uh, Senator Gardner is going to lose. Senator Collins is probably going to lose. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I mean, but, you know, that prediction is worth what you paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I think that's a perfect way to end, and that was actually very fascinating. Thank you very much. My pleasure. We'll be right back with our chief White House correspondent, John Carl, and he'll tell us what he's hearing from the president and his defense team. Welcome back to The Investigation. I'm Chris Vlasto, along with my co-host, ABC News reporter Catherine Falders, who covers the White House and Capitol Hill. And now joining us is Chief White House Correspondent John Carl. He's also host of the podcast Powerhouse Politics. And John, we just talked to Paul Rosenzweig. Uh, He worked on Ken Starr's team back 21 years ago, and he was extremely critical of the White House's argument back to the House. I I think he he called it completely outside the box of normal discussion. He called Trump's argument the scream of a wounded animal. Wow. Yeah. That's tough. And that's tough stuff. So what do you make of that? What what is the White House strategy for this impeachment? Well, above all, the White House wants to challenge the legitimacy of this and say that, you know, effectively the president wasn't really impeached uh, because it was a, a sham process and it didn't, you know, didn't go along the lines of what uh, the founders had in mind with impeachment and it wasn't fair. And, you know, I mean, you know, litany of, uh, of, of words like hoax and witch hunt, um, that's not really a strategy, but but that's uh, that's how the White House wants to wants to frame this as an impeachment that was entirely partisan, which it was, um, and does not have legitimacy, which actually it does have legitimacy. The House voted to impeach him. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the vote must be bipartisan. Um, so that said, when you look at what happened after Nancy Pelosi turned over the articles of impeachment to uh, uh, to the you know to the Senate, and you saw that first presentation on the Senate floor, and you see the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court being sworn in, and you see all 100 senators. Actually, there were 99 there uh, at, at at the time. Uh, you know, seated in their seats, and then going up um, and signing uh, in in that book their oath to be to do impartial justice. To see them raising their hands and. And, and saying, I do to that oath as, as it's read, 
uh, by the uh, by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. That does not look like a sham hoax witch hunt. That looks like a very serious, somber, maybe the overused word, historic uh, event. Uh, this looks uh, deadly serious. Uh, you know, the House has impeached. Now the Senate has in its power the ability to remove an elected president. So in the face of all that, I think that, that, that the White House uh, doesn't want to give it that sense of legitimacy and seriousness and weightiness and wants to portray this as just some kind of a, you know, a, 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 of a sham. But it's hard to do when you see, you know, you, you see this playing out exactly as, as it was uh, envisioned by the founders. But do you think, though, even with all this, the solemnity of the event and that at the end of the day, there are not enough Republicans that are going to break ranks. So we know what the outcome is, right? Yeah. As, you know, as it's been said, this is like watching a baseball game where you know the final score. Um, it's, it's virtually impossible to, uh, to, to, to envision, maybe even impossible to envision a scenario where there are 67 senators voting to remove the president. But, you know, th- 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 this is a beginning of a process. The Democrats are, are, are you know, pushing to, to see this as a trial, as a real trial, uh, to, to bring in witnesses. Some of those witnesses we have not heard from. I mean, obviously, John Bolton. Uh, but, to, but to see Mick Mulvaney under oath answering some of the questions that we asked him in the <laughs> briefing room. Um, you know, could things spiral out of control? It's hard to imagine. But, um, but um, look, you remember well, Chris. I was at CNN at the time. You were at ABC uh, during the, the last impeachment trial. There was nobody who thought that there was a chance uh, that, that Bill Clinton was going to be removed from office. There was a thought that there could be some Democratic defections. Uh, there could be a majority that would vote to remove him. Uh, and that would have been, you know, politically potentially devastating to, to, to Bill Clinton. But there was there was no real sense then that there was any chance that he was actually going to be removed. Though there was more par- uh, bipartisanship then. Yes. I mean, we even talked to Rosenzweig. A little bit more. A little bit more. I mean, here it seems... Dug in. Yeah. And John, this is really the first time that we're going to see this legal argument from the president's attorneys about why he shouldn't be removed from office. Of course, they stonewalled um, the House investigation. So they filed that 110 page brief. But what was striking about that defense is they essentially... Uh, argue that even if he did do it, it, it would have been okay if the president did raise the issue of Biden uh, or Burisma in the course of engaging with Ukraine. There wouldn't have been anything wrong because the president was seeking to advance the public interest. That's that's what their brief says, and it kind of almost feels. You mentioned Mulvaney in your exchange with the mayor, uh, like a Mulvaney argument in a way, even though he walked it back. Like, oh, even if he did do it, it would have been okay. Is that the sense you're getting from sources over there? Yeah, it's 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 the uh, you know get over it. This always happens. There's politics and foreign policy, and the idea of using the leverage of of aid, um, you know, to to get what you want uh, out of a foreign government is is the, that's called foreign policy. So yes, yeah, so the so that 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 is part of the argument. So you have you have a you have a few. I would add one more. So 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 the the, the first part of the argument is this is all completely ridiculous and 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 does not have legitimacy. That's kind of hard to argue when the 
chief justice is is sitting there presiding and and all 100 senators are uh you know silently uh, listening to the arguments so the the second thing is well the uh, allegations here are not impeachable so even if he did it um he uh you know you can't impeach him over this um and then the third is uh well he never did it he never really there were, there was never any quid pro quo despite what we saw during the uh, during the House hearings and what Mulvaney uh, said to us uh, in in the briefing room, there actually never was. You know, the bottom line is uh, the the uh, the investigation. The the Ukrainians never actually opened the investigation, and they got the money. So where's your quid pro quo? So they've got a series of arguments, um, but. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how how it plays out because it's they, they haven't really gone chapter and verse on the substance of this at all yet. And now that we're at the trial, you know, we you, you got to think that part of the White House presentation is going to be, you know, answering the allegations, uh, not not simply arguing the law, but also arguing the facts. But John, don't you think I asked Paul Rosenzweig this question? Don't you think that the Democrats made a mistake? not subpoenaing these witnesses during the House hearing? Well, I, I think that that, uh, that that is something that will be debated for a long time. We, we know why they didn't do it, uh, because if they had gone through and they'd had a subpoena battle um, over, over, you know, over these witnesses, it would have been a court battle that would have gone on potentially for for many months, even the better part of a year. It would have gone to the uh, district court. It would have been appealed. It would have gone to the Supreme Court. Um, You you quite possibly could have had a situation where – and they felt confident that they would prevail. The Democrats felt that they would would ultimately uh, prevail even at at a Supreme Court uh, with uh, a conservative Supreme Court with, with two justices uh, who were on that court because of Donald Trump. They felt that they, that, they, that they ultimately had a very good chance of prevailing on this, but it wouldn't have happened until the fall. So you could have had a situation where you almost simultaneously had um, an impeachment trial uh, getting underway uh, just as we were gearing up for a fall election. John, what's your sense on, uh, just internally from sources you're speaking to in the White House, that your sense on witnesses here? We know how they feel publicly about it. They don't feel that the White House doesn't feel they need these witnesses. Uh, they want this to go quickly. But uh, also, the president has also shifted his tone on this from, you know, a month or so ago, saying that he'd be happy to let these people testify. Uh, then he was asked about his uh, former national security advisor, John Bolton, uh, more recently. I think you might have yeah, been talking to him that. at that yeah, time. Yeah. And then he said, oh, you know, I'd like him to testify. But then there's these issues of privilege. And now he's tweeting on Monday that the House didn't want John Bolton. They were in too much of a rush. Now they want uh, them all in the Senate, not supposed to be that way. So he's kind of evolved here. I mean, what's your sense from, you know, privately, whether he, you know, feels like Bolton would be, you know, would say bad would would testify and wouldn't necessarily help him, or or do you get the sense that he actually wants these people sitting here? Well, McConnell, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, has been completely consistent on this. He has mm-hmm. said, you know, no witnesses, no witnesses, no witnesses. But I can tell you that as McConnell was laying that out, I would, and I'm sure you as well, Catherine, go to go to uh, White House officials involved in preparing for this for this trial, and say so uh, the. You know, is the White House on board with McConnell's 
admonition, no witnesses. And the answer I got is I, I can't really give you an answer on that yet because the only person that can determine that is Donald Trump. Now, the president's legal team is on board with that. Um, but but Trump is, has, has, has gone back and forth, as he does on many, many, many things. <laughs> and, and I think, like, the, the relationship between McConnell and, and Trump. So far, we've seen the White House publicly and privately defer to McConnell. In fact, as you know, they uh, the White House wanted those House members on the defense team um, who could, you know, ardently defend the president. And then he, he McConnell said, I don't want that. And they didn't end up having it. But at the same time, you mentioned, you know, the relationship between the two of them, they, they feel private, privately very different about this. And I can't, I'm interested to see how that relationship plays out during the trial and if it actually does stay cordial. Well, I am too. And, and I, I have to say, my, this is all from kind of my read of Trump, of having followed him for, for so long. Uh, I, I think that the whole process on some level actually freaks him out because you have mm-hmm. a situation where he is truly not in control. And the ultimate, the ultimate moment in that is when it comes time to vote on the verdict, removal or acquittal. And this is a moment where it's all in the senator's hands and, the, and he has no control if 67 senators decide he is removed from office. There is no appeal. There is nothing. He can go out and hold a thousand rallies if he wants, but he is out of the White House. Um, he can go out. but And I think, it, I think it's to, uh, on a level just kind of not that he thinks that's going to happen, not that anybody thinks that's going to happen, but it is a moment where he is not in the driver's seat. Somebody else truly controls his fate. So if you look at the way he has acted over the last several months, it's become clear that we were headed towards a trial. Um, I have to say the effusiveness with which he has praised, lavished praise upon, um, upon Republicans in the Senate and the restraint that he has shown um, when you thought that he might have lashed out after one or another of, of the Republicans to go in a different direction has been remarkable. Uh, it was just last week. Uh, when he, you know, did uh, did an event with a a large number of uh, of senators uh, uh, in the uh, in the East Room in the White House, and he's and and he's going senator by senator and just talking about how John Thune, who I've never really heard Donald Trump talk much about, John Thune of the great state of South Dakota, made it sound like he was like you know uh, Henry Clay or something. Um, yeah, it was just before that impeachment vote. Yes, trans- just before there. just before they were. I mean, almost simultaneous to the transmission of the articles of impeachment to the Senate. Um, so you know, I I I I, I think that this is. Part of why you see him deferring to McConnell, he knows that McConnell, you know, on some level really, really controls his fate. Now, I have to say, if you go back uh, earlier last year, I know there were serious discussions among uh, people close, very close to the president about whether or not to endorse whether or not the president should endorse Mitch McConnell's primary opponent in, in, in Kentucky. You know, McConnell's up for re-election mm-hmm. uh, in, in Kentucky, and he's faced a primary. You know, Matt, Matt Bevin chart, uh, challenged him in the past, and there were discussions. Um, 
uh, about that. I don't think the president, I, I don't know if he ever seriously uh, considered doing that. But look, th- th- this, this president's never been close to McConnell. Uh, McConnell was one of the last Republicans to get on board in 2016, really only after it was done. And, um, and he's surrounded by people who, uh, the pre- this president, who, who don't like McConnell. I mean, M- Mick Mulvaney is not, a, is, not a, uh, is not a Mitch McConnell guy, for instance, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's an understatement. I, so, so, uh, but, but now, you know, I, I think there's a recognition certainly by the president's legal team and by the president himself um, that, that they need McConnell. John, what do you think the effect on the voters will this have on Democratic voters? I mean, for the four senators that are sitting in the, the, the room, is it going to affect their Iowa and New Hampshire if this trial is going on simultaneously? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's the, the, the pressure to be there and to be present um, is, is, is great. And these senators, uh, for every day that they are there sitting in the chamber – uh, at, at a, an impeachment trial, they are not on the campaign trail. And by the way, sometimes if you're held back to Washington and you're a senator running for office, it can be a good opportunity because you have a chance to show, you know, to 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 get attention, to uh, to to become associated with a cause. Uh, if there's some, if there's a big Supreme Court confirmation battle, or if there's something that something that gives you a platform, they don't have any platform at all because they have to be silent. So it doesn't do you any good. And you're not even on camera for the most part. You're just sitting there in a chamber stuck uh, when, you, when, you, when you should be out uh, on the campaign trail. Now, I have to say, uh, uh, Chris, I, I don't know if you remember this, but I, I was in that chamber for a lot of days. I remember in, in 99, and I remember there were often 99 senators there. And the senator who was absent the most um, was uh, was John McCain, because McCain calculated that it was more important for him to be getting ready for his presidential campaign. He ran in two thousand, uh, and and he he often uh, skipped it and didn't really take any heat for it. But I but it seems to me like you know I mean Bernie Sanders has made it clear the, the, it, they've made it clear that they feel responsibility to be uh, at this trial, and I think I think the, I think they all will be. Here's your prediction. How long do you think this is going to last? I think it ends up being on the short side, um, which means two weeks or less. And the reason why I, I think that, that that happens is I think there's actually a confluence of interest, uh, both uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, despite you know the, the, the push that Democrats will make uh, for witnesses and screaming about the process and screaming that this is not thorough enough. They actually don't want a, uh, a trial that's going to drag on any more than the White House does. And, you know, that's largely because of what it does to their, to, to their presidential candidates. Uh, but, but it's also because, you know, Chris, the, 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 there is, there is a, already before this has started, there is impeachment fatigue in the country. Mm-hmm. And those that are fired up for this and want to see it drag out and want to see it all go on, they're already they're already not voting for Donald Trump. <laughs> well, so this doesn't this, politically it's not a it's not a winner, uh, not, and, and that's not necessarily the way that you should look at it. But but that look we're, we're in a political world, and so I think that uh, while Republicans clearly want a quick uh, trial and to get this over with, I think that actually ultimately Democrats want that too. 
All right, a perfect way to end. Thank you, John, and I'll see you down in Washington. All right, thank you. And remember, it's Powerhouse Politics Powerhouse. with Rick Klein. <laughs> and will you come on my podcast now? Of course. Uh, thanks a lot. Well, that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Be sure to hit subscribe as a special edition episodes may post in your podcast feed as the Senate impeachment trial of the president gavels in. I'd like to thank our producers, Trevor Hastings, Caitlin Fulmer. For Catherine Falders and myself, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you back again soon for another edition of The Investigation. <laughs>